All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucksters? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. I don't know when I started saying that, but uh, it seems to have stuck. How's everybody doing? What day is today? It's Monday. I guess it would be the 26th of uh, February, if you're listening to this, the day it's released. Uh, I hope that things are okay. I think okay is good. Okay is the new good. Fine is always whatever. But okay, I hope you're okay. I am in uh, New Mexico, hence the slight difference in sound quality. I'm in a hotel room in New Mexico. I'm realizing now that my chair is squeaky, so I'm going to have to sit uh, very still. Uh, I'm here uh, as uh, per usual uh, to, uh, to sort of spend time with my father, who is uh, slowly uh, uh, detaching. Uh, I, maybe, I, maybe I should sit on the couch. This chair is a bit much. Hold on. Let me, let me change chairs and see if this one uh, will work any better. Um, but I came out here uh, to, uh, to deal with some stuff and to deal with him back in the uh, home state. And uh, it, was, uh, it, it, it remains a, a bit uh, heavy, but uh, interesting, and uh, it's good to see him. Uh, it, there is a sadness to it all, but I'm, I'm starting to feel that that is just the, the way this all kind of uh, winds down for, for any of us on some level. But uh, I don't want to bum you out out of the gate. Let me tell you that today I talked to uh, Lily Gladstone. She's our final Oscar nominee. Uh, that is a kind of kind of come through the garage this year. She's nominated for Best Actress for her performance in Killers of the Flower Moon. She won the SAG Award last night. And uh, I was very excited to uh, talk to her, but very nervous. I, I don't know if I am, am clear with you people about why this show remains what it what it is and, and why if you if you still listen and and each conversation you know despite me being a constant is engaging and interesting is that it has to be for me as well and there is a type of dread that I experience before any of these conversations like any of you would have heading into a conversation with somebody that you don't really know but you've heard about or that you want to meet, but you, uh, you, you only know their work or, or you've heard people tell you stories about them or whatever. But there is a, a kind of uh, very human and very present anxiety or nervousness about entering these conversations because I don't really know, you know how it's going to go. I never really know. I don't ever know. And, and because of the way I do it, which is try to engage and get a real groove going uh, and and figure out what I'm interested in about them that you know maybe uh, not they haven't revealed necessarily or or just you know, a way to get them to a place where they can speak from from who they are and it's 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 uh, I'm not going to say exhausting because it's not exhausting but that's the process that for someone like Lily I know it's going to happen you know a couple weeks ahead of time and then my brain I don't know how your brain works but this is the same with uh with everything that I do that it just starts kind of slowly working it you know every day kind of kind of thinking about it kind of like imagining how it would go figuring out what interests me figuring out what does she as a person have in there 
and you know, how do I, I sort of engage with that in, in the, the small amount of time that I'm going to have with her. And it's, it's a process, but there is, it's not without, there's never, there's never a time with any conversation I have with anyone, even if I've known the person for years where I'm like, this is going to be no problem. I mean, sometimes with comics, yeah, but it still is what it is. You still got to figure out something to do. And they, it, and it's, it's, it's my, it's my profession, my job, but it's also my passion, but it is a, it, it takes up, there's a process to it and it's an internal process and it's a, an emotional process that, you know, I kind of have to work towards it. Sometimes when I know someone's coming up in a month, I'm like, well, you gotta make sure you have your brain kind of wrapped around the work that this person is here for, not not the thing that they're here promoting or, or why I necessarily got this person, but why are they what they are as an artist and where does that come from and what of their work moved you the most or, 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 or made you realize that they were uh, a, an amazing creative person. And for with Lily, it's interesting because the first time I saw her, I, I had no idea who she was. The first time I saw her was in the Kelly Reichardt movie, uh, Certain Women. And I was astounded. And I talked to Reichardt about this. And, and I was astounded by her performance. I, it was beyond, it was otherworldly. And I had no idea who she was. But I could not forget and, and haven't forgotten and will always remember her performance in that in terms of how she handled it or how she you know dealt with the character that she was playing in that and the humanity of it was was fucking mind-blowing to me and then she's in first cow in a smaller and a different role but that's that that's another kelly reichardt film but certain women that was for me i was like oh my god and i believe and i talked to her about it that's where scorsese saw her uh and and thought about casting her for um uh killers of the flower moon but also there was this other movie that she did just a couple of years ago called um, Unknown Country. And I didn't know anything about it. I heard nothing about it. I don't know if any of you saw it, but I was like, you know, this is new. I mean, she must have filmed this shortly after or just before Killers of a Flower Moon, but it's an indie and it's about a woman's journey as a, a native person uh, in terms of her identity and it's a very poetic movie and it's kind of a brilliant movie and I watched it and I'm like well this is this is where it's at you know this is where I begin you know my conversation with her and my understanding of her because this seems like a very personal movie and it was that work the all the work you know outside of Killers of a Flower Moon where I was like this is where this conversation lives and, and it's like, it's a, a slow and, and enlightening process for me. I, I guess, you know, if your job is constantly enlightening to you or, or broadening your understanding and appreciation of things, it's a fucking gift and I'm grateful for it. So that's happening today. Uh, I, another thing I want to mention, which is also very exciting and was also a fairly nerve wracking, not nerve wracking, but you know, it, 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 I, I put a lot into these things, man. But I talked to Carol Burnett last week. Carol Burnett. And she's 90 years old and she's sharp as a tack. And I drove up to Montecito in the torrential downpour and flooding uh, to, to talk to one of the great geniuses of comedy. And we have to 
hold the episode until later in March so it'll line up with the premiere of the new show she's in called Palm Royale. Um, you know, that that's also has Allison Janney in it and Kristen Wiig. It's kind of a, a, a comedy tour de force. I watched the whole season. I enjoyed it. But we are holding it. But I just wanted you to know that I did it. And I wanted you to give, a, a, give you a little, uh, a little taste of the interview. So uh, this is me and Carol Burnett for a few. You had a, a pretty uh, good friendship with Lucy, right? Yes. How did that work? Did she see you and realize She you... came to see me in Mattress. Okay. The second night. And yeah. I was so nervous. She came backstage. She called me kid. Yeah. Because she was 22 years older. Yeah. And she said... A kid, if you ever need me for anything. She was so sweet. Yeah. So like about four years later, I was going to do a special. Yeah. Only if I could get a, a big guest star. Uh-huh. So Bob Banner, who was the executive, said, call Lucy. Right. And I said, I didn't want to bother her. You know, it was years ago. She, sure. All she can do is say, I'd love to, but I'm busy. I got her on the phone. And I said, I, she said, you're doing great, kid. And I said, what is it? What's going on? I was fumfering. I said, oh, you know, I'm going to, but I know you're busy. She said, when do you want me? Yeah. So my husband, Joe, yeah. was producing our show. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so Lucy was a guest and we had a break and we went over to the uh, farmer's market to have a little bite to eat. Oh, before, right there at CVS? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so to eat before uh, orchestra rehearsal. So she's sitting there and she's having a whiskey sour. She's going to knock him one back. And she's saying, yeah, kid. It's great you've got Joe to be the producer. She said, because when I was married to the Cuban, because yeah. <laughs> they were divorced by yeah, then, yeah. she said, uh, does he, he did everything. He took care of the scripts. He took care of the lighting. He was the one who invented the three camera system. Yeah. And he was everything. So that when I came in on Monday, everything was perfect. All I had to do was be silly, gr Lucy. Yeah. Then we got a divorce. And she said, now I'm going to do be Lucy Carmichael and do those other, the, Lucy the Lucille show. Ball show, the yeah. Lucy show. She said, so I go into, I read the script and she said, it's terrible. It stank. There wasn't Desi there who would have fixed it. And she said, I, I didn't know what to do. I thought, oh my God. So she said, she called lunch and she said, I went into my uh, office and I said, and I thought, I've got to be like Desi. I've got to be tough. I've got to be, you know, yeah. she said, so I went back and she said, and I told him in no uncertain terms, she said, I, ch I channeled Desi. And then she said, and kid, and she took another drink. She said, <laughs> and that's when they put the S on the end of my last name. <laughs> All right. So that's something you can look forward to. Uh, it was Again, an honor just to, you know, I can't even, I don't know if I can really explain to you the emotions and the sort of zone that, it, you know, I drove up there to Monet. I'll talk about it when, when I, uh, when I do the episode, but you know, just to, I'm waiting in a hotel room in the pouring rain to talk to Carol Burnett. I mean, Carol Burnett was, is, she was amazing and, and it's still amazing. She is acting at 90 in this show, but 
we'll talk more about it when that when that episode airs. All right, let's get you up to speed on tour dates if you're not. You know, God knows I mentioned them enough. This week I'm in Los Angeles at Largo on Wednesday, February 28th, and I'm at the Elysian Theater on Thursday, February 29th. Then next week I'm in Portland, Maine at the State Theater on Thursday, March 7th, Medford, Massachusetts at the Chevalier Theater on Friday, March 8th. Providence, Rhode Island at the Strand Theater on Saturday, March 9th. Terrytown, New York at the Terrytown Music Hall on Sunday, March 10th. Atlanta, Georgia. I'm at the Buckhead Theater on Friday, March 22nd. I have to check if they've added a show. Boise, Idaho. I'm at the Egyptian Theater on Saturday, March 23rd as part of Comedy Fort at Tree Fort Music Fest. Madison, Wisconsin at the Barrymore Theater on Wednesday, April 3rd. Milwaukee, Wisconsin at the Turner Hall Ballroom on Thursday, April 4th. Chicago at the Vic Theater on Friday, April 5th. Minneapolis at the Pantages Theater on Saturday, April 6th. Uh, Austin, Texas at the Paramount Theater on Thursday, April 18th. As part of the Moon Tower Comedy Festival, you can go to WTFPod.com for uh, for tickets. All the links are there. And there's more dates coming. I, you know, and again, you know, I know I say this every couple of years, but uh, some part of me is winding down, people. I know I, 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 I don't know. I, I, I am 60. I hit 60. But like I've been working pretty much nonstop in one form or another. Uh, and the, as I've mentioned to you before, even the podcast, it, the emotional and mental effort and energy it takes it's this is the job. This is the work. I love it, but it's work. The comedy, all of it. And I don't vacation. Uh, Brendan and I never take a break. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but we've done a new show every Monday and Thursday for uh, since 2009. We're workers. I'm a worker. And, and there's no work that I sleep through. There's no work that I autopilot. There's nothing to, that, in terms of any of the jobs I do. Uh, in my life where I can just kind of uh, show up and go through the emotions. Not possible. I'm a little tired. I was very excited and intimidated and a bit nervous to, um, to sit down with Lily Gladstone. And uh, it, it was great. I, I love her work. And it was really a privilege and a pleasure to talk to her. Lily is nominated for Best Actress at the Academy Awards. Killers of the Flower Moon is streaming on Apple TV Plus. And this is uh, our conversation. So you're here. This is crazy. I know. I'm so excited you to are? be here. I am. What's been going on? Are you Are you tired? <laughs> i think it would be weird if i wasn't yeah are you, are you tired of, of fielding similar questions i mean only only if i don't get to change my answers up a little bit got to mix it up mm -hmm. yeah. i know because it's it's very weird when when you do sort of develop a public narrative you know for yourself and depending on who you're talking to you're like am i gonna throw something new in here yep can i just ride this one out it absolutely has to do with who you're talking to and your comfort level because there's just some things i know if i bring up it's like i'm not going to contextualize this right. for this person, for this person because you know? yeah, they're barely listening audience or whatever yeah, yeah exactly yeah i uh i don't know like because i was thinking about it before i talked to you like i imagine the because i was thinking about your presence on screen and i've watched a lot of stuff 
But I imagine you're one of these people that people just project an infinite amount of things onto. Well, good catch. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think it's maybe the kind of this open mama face because we all do that to like our moms. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. I just have right. that presence. Right. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I loved when he had Kelly Reichert on. I love her. Mm-hmm. Like that's when I first saw you. I had no idea who you were or, mm-hmm. or she was to a degree, but I had watched, I had watched First Cow mm-hmm. first and, uh, you know, I saw uh, Wendy and, and Lucy a long time ago, mm-hmm. but I'd watched First Cow and I'm a big McCabe and Mrs. Miller fan. And yeah, it just, yeah, yeah. And it's like her version of Absolutely. that almost, you mm-hmm. know, just the tone of it and everything. And you were in that and it was a, it's a different character than the one you play in in the Flowers of the Killer Moon is it? <laughs> Killers of the Flower Moon. You're I, not I the do, only person who does that. I do That's it a all. Common the, one. I do it all the time. But <laughs> but the the thing with Kelly is when I watch certain women, and and you were in it, I, I was completely sort of like, who the fuck is this person? <laughs> what is she doing? What? <laughs> Oh, it's an okay. honor. That's how I feel when I see you on screen, too. Come on. Who the fuck is this guy? This you is know, amazing. Come on. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, that, the intensity of that character and just the, uh, the longing and the mm-hmm. strange sort of, it wasn't even mild, but it was somehow an endearing obsession. Totally. Because <laughs> it's just pure country, like, isolation, you know, no. Um, yeah, yeah. Kelly talks about how even when she's writing in her her studio or in her apartment for too long she forgets how to interact with people when she goes back in society she's like oh am I making eye contact too much am I like staring at this person <laughs> the self-consciousness yeah 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 yep. but like when you're doing that how now is that she was really the first person that made you big it put you in big films right mm-hmm. yeah how did that happen where were you I you know, I had kind of not thrown in the towel on things, but I had tried out Austin for a minute. Um, I had uh, a, I had an independent film out called Winter in the Blood that yeah. kind of created a filmmaking family for me, both in Montana and Austin, because one of the filmmakers was from there. Are so, you a lead in that? Um, yes. I don't, it's, I mean, it's a support. Um, and that was the first one? Yeah, it was my first introducing credit. Austin? Yep. We shot it in Montana. Um, but the, one of the filmmakers, uh, Alex Smith, lived in Austin because he was teaching at UT Austin at right. the time. And there was a film incentive there. So I figured yeah. that was a good place to go. But then some family issues brought me back north. And then I was managing a grant to show Winter in the Blood in um, in reservation communities around Montana and take digital storytelling You got a grant in. for that? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. They did. I just managed okay. it. So I had just moved back to Montana. Um I'd done a theater tour earlier that year. I was kind of... What do you mean? I, I went out with the University of Montana. has a an, an in-house professional theater repertory company, the Montana so like Repertory e- Theater. Regional theater kind of thing? Yep. What yep. were you doing? Like, like, uh, like... I'd done The Miracle Worker. <laughs> I was playing Kate Keller, uh, Ellen Keller's mom. Oh, wow. Miracle Worker. And just touring it to regional theaters? Yeah. Um, to, like, you know... Uh, yeah, not just for... theaters, but, you know, like rural places around the United States. Oh, wow. Um, high yeah. school gyms, old, yeah. old opera houses. It would just depend on. So was the, was the intention educational? Kind of, yeah. I mean, it was also, you know, we were gaining our actors' um, union, our actors' equity points. Because right. you have to do so many professional right. productions yeah, yeah. to join the union. And that one made me a union performer that year. That's an exciting moment, isn't it? It was cool, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. It was. Got your card. Yep, got my card. I'm a union member. It was wonderful. And And were you doing Q&As and stuff after kind of thing? Often, yeah. Yeah, a lot of the time. And And, and, like, what was the reaction to like theater in rural areas? 
kind of like it was when I was a kid and we would get theater coming around. It's just like, it's a breath of fresh air. It's something else to do. Um, my first times on stage were when Missoula Children's Theater would come to our little reservation school and yeah, put yeah. on a play. Yeah. And yeah, just um, there's a bustle around it. Yeah. The community turns out for it. Um, this is when you were really young? Missoula Children's Theater was, yeah. I was uh, maybe six when I did my first play with them. Wow. Where were you living? This was in East Glacier, Montana, on the Blackfeet Reservation. Little four-room schoolhouse in East Glacier, 60 kids, kindergarten through eighth grade school. I got a friend. I only know a couple of people from Montana, but one of my best friends is from Montana. Oh, no kidding. And he, he talks about this, like, just that schoolhouse. Mm-hmm. And his, his, his dad had sort of a bunch of land and... and Yep. And they had cows. Yep. So he had to go deal with cows. And he's just got all these horror stories about coming upon dead cows, having to deal, wake it, up at five in the morning. They surprise you. Like, <laughs> I was shooting a Western in rural Montana, and yeah. we were like, oh, that house is kind of cool. It's like, oh, there's a dead rotting cow inside of it. That inside the house? Yeah, inside this old, like, farmer's house or this old, like, rancher's house that was kind of abandoned. I, you know, I don't know a lot about cows, but I, like, I've been vegan for, like, a year for not really ethical reasons. Health. Yeah, yeah, well, just to try it. There you go. <laughs> and uh, my sensitivity to to all animals is kind of kind of heightened. Interesting. You know, and I and when I see cows, I'm like, I know they're dumb, but they they seem nice. <laughs> yeah, you know, they're cute. It, <laughs> First cow is a great one. Like that, that cow that is amazing. so beautiful. She's so pretty. And you guys had a you, well, you didn't work directly with the cow. No, I but never the, got to meet the cow. The cow was on set. Yep. Complaining in between takes. <laughs> I think she actually like kind of developed a crush on John Magaro in that. Oh, really? From what I've heard. Oh, yeah. They had a very sweet little. They had a nice chemistry on screen. It's a sweet movie. It it's is. Good. But okay, so you're on the reservation. Do you do you remember life there? Yeah, um, we moved away right when I was going into middle school. Oh, so you were there for a while. Mm-hmm. Yep. All my early childhood memories were pretty much formed there. Middle school and high school were in um, in the city. We'd moved to Seattle, but then I moved back to Montana for college and stayed. So it was. So is that where you are sent? Folk, uh, uh, not ha- these days. Oh no, not these days. We still have our family home there. We still have a parcel of land there. Um, oh really? On the res, which is my dad's. It's my dad's name, and that'll become mine. Um, What's the situation there now? On the res. I mean. A little like res dogs. <laughs> is it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a, that show has just had such an impact on so many folks because it's like we see ourselves. Oh, it, it destroyed me. I mean, yeah. I couldn't, like, I couldn't You're get so over it. so good in that show. Oh, thanks. It was funny because I think he wrote that as sort of a full metal jacket takeoff. Like that character <laughs> was supposed to be sort of this sergeant kind of guy. Mm-hmm. But I, I wanted to be in it. And I know Sterling. And they put me in that, so I just kind of made it Yep, <laughs> what, whatever that guy was. But, you know, a very good friend of mine who spent a significant portion of his adolescence in a boy's home like that yeah. said that you nailed it. You, you were, like, exactly like his, like, I don't know what you call it, corrections <laughs> yeah. officer maybe. Well, the ego of a guy, you know, in recovery that has this responsibility, <laughs> like, he still has to kind of, like, puff up, you, yep. you know, but it's so shallow. Yeah, I, yep. yeah. Yeah, I had a real stretch for that one. That was a real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have a problem with acting because, like, I make all these choices, mm. but then once you get in it, you're like, I'm just being me. I'm just kind of being me. <laughs> just not talking as much, and I'm not as freaked out. But it's so watchable. I that, mean, just so watchable. That whole show, you were great mm. in it. That Thank was you. like that's a like a, a heavy part. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. It was insane when I got the when I got the sides because the first episode that you see Hokti and uh, Migsy Pensano wrote, and Migs and I go back to Missoula. Um, we were both there at the same time. I hung out after college and just stayed in Montana until really certain women started popping off, and then I went on the road for it and kind of stayed on the road. But, um, yeah, Mig, like... Megan Sterling both saw me do Winter in the Blood forever ago. They were two of the first people that took notice of me for what I could do. And when I got this scene, like, it just had everything in there that I want to do. And it felt like it was written for me in a way. Cause, the the, the uh, incarcerated mom? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, it's such a poignant thing to have this really profound spiritual healing moment take place in a prison because so many of our relatives are incarcerated. It's like, especially in the American West, it's like the highest number of people incarcerated in Montana and North Dakota, South Dakota, like all these places that we grew up are natives. Yeah. And um, to, to play this woman who's essentially a healer, you know, a lot of, a lot of healers are really sensitive to the world and sensitive people you know, colonization hits you harder. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the things that, you know, like, not that you necessarily are a designated representative mm-hmm. of the Native community, but, you know, once people become more educated, which I think Reservation Dogs did, mm-hmm. because the thing that struck me about it was that there is a groove of spirituality, humor, mm-hmm. communication, and community that to most people— is is alien. We don't know what that really looks like. Sure. So when I saw it, you know, after having seen you know you know a few uh, native driven movies in my life, I was like, this is this is a whole world mm-hmm. that has its own everything. Yeah. And this is the first we're really seeing it. Yeah. With a certain uh, and just how quickly audiences take to that and feel comfortable with it. It's like what we've been insisting for years yeah. that our stories like. You know, you're told that they're too esoteric or they're not universal enough, but it's like bullshit because when people watch it, they yeah. see something that feels so human and familiar and immediate. And honest. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's what it is growing up on a res. People are honest, <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. And like, you're not judged for what, for like material wealth. That was a huge part of like the culture shock of moving to a suburb when I was in middle school when what your identity is forming so much north of Seattle. Really? Mm-hmm. Yep. So did you feel that, uh, did you feel different? Yeah. I mean, were you treated differently? Yeah. Really? It, was, it happened to be the year that Pocahontas had come out for Disney, too. So it was like all the little <laughs> little pot shots your classmates take at you. Can you paint with all the colors of the wind? <laughs> were they pot shots or were they curious? <laughs> uh, it was definitely a pot shot for oh, yeah. one, one guy in particular. You remember that guy? I do, Yeah. <laughs> All the girls had a crush on that guy. Uh, that guy. Oh, yeah. The, the asshole. Yep. The one who negs everybody. Yeah, 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 yep. yeah. Yeah, that was I wonder what shake. that guy's doing. It's always good to go back and check out <laughs> where the assholes end up. <laughs> Probably in sales. Yeah, of course. Would be my guess. Yeah. Frustrated in sales. <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a horrible marriage. Who knows? Yeah. Who I mean, knows? when I went back from my high school reunion, I was like, just to see how, like, fat and weird all the jocks got i was like oh this is this is a, i waited 25 years to go back to a reunion man my 20 year reunion is this year uh are you gonna go you gotta go you know yeah. it's it's being organized right now i think it's gonna happen in may but my classes come back together to schedule an oscars watch party 
Because they voted me most likely to win an Oscar. Which, from middle school, high school? From high school. Really? Yeah, I've got like the little photo, me and Josh Ryder there doing our little American Gothic pose. He's holding uh, one of those little um, men that you use in sculpture. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Well, that's... uh, Silly. (laughs) But but I wouldn't go back until I had some uh, success that was visible. I mean, it's pretty cool to walk in in with an Oscar nomination to your 20-year high school reunion. Hell yeah. (laughs) It's better than walking in having people going, how's it working out, the acting? (laughs) Exactly. And you got to tell some story exactly. about a, a, a theater thing you did yep. somewhere else. You know, my 10-year reunion, yeah. I think, is when I got certain women, now that I'm thinking about it. So that would have been fine, too. Yeah, that would have been fine, except, like, you know, then you'd have to bring the movie with you. Right. Because <laughs> nobody knows <laughs> yeah, yeah. who Kelly Riker It's right is. here. Yep. Uh, which is a crime that people don't know who Kelly Riker is. I know. That, the last movie was so funny. Mm-hmm. It was so funny. Kelly is funny. I thought First Cow was funny. When I was watching oh, yeah, it at definitely. New York Film Festival, I feel like I was kind of annoying. I mean, I was I got there late, so nobody knew I was in New York. Yeah. Otherwise, I know I would have gotten like an invite and been like up front. But I kind of snuck in last minute and was in the balcony in the very back. And I was cracking up the whole time. <laughs> and I could tell that I was annoying some of the people I was sitting around <laughs> until like yeah. Kelly like called me out in the audience and I called back. Then it was kind of fine that I was there. But well, what's weird about movies that deal with any sort of um, different race or ethnicity is that, you know, the type of people that go to art movies or small movies mm-hmm. are are usually heavy hearted liberal people <laughs> and they they don't know when to laugh and exactly. they, they don't know if it's exactly. okay to laugh. So they're just sitting there in a knot mm-hmm. and, you know, and knowing they're going to enjoy it no matter what. They're not going to say anything bad about them. Right, 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 right. Because <laughs> it would look bad if they did. They that's would look right. uncultured if that, they did. That's right. Yep. But no, that per- giving people permission to laugh yes. thing is, um, that's also a very Indian thing, I think. Because like when we talk about, and that's one thing I love about Res Dogs yeah, totally. too. And, you know, I just encourage anybody to go back and rewatch Kelly Reichert's movies as comedies because they're hilarious. Yes. <laughs> Don't take them so seriously. Otherwise, you're not going to enjoy it. It's like Chekhov. Well, the, the the dynamic between you and Kristen mm-hmm. Stewart was, was kind of hilarious. The, right? the disconnect. Yep. And that, you know, her self-centeredness yep. had, had no sensitivity to what you were feeling at all, really. Yep. And, <laughs> <laughs> and just how much I hung on her. I know. I know. Like, the, the scene where you, like, just drive forever to sit outside where she works <laughs> oh, was, was so crazy. <laughs> yep. And, you know, just like, oh, hey, how's it going? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Casual. <laughs> Slept in my car, you know. <laughs> but, like, I, I think that something that is not your responsibility, but I think that is naturally carried by you as a performer is, and I don't know if, it, if weight is is the right word for it, but the the sort of uh, um, gravity. gravity, yeah, of your personal experience and the experience of, of Native culture, right? In the sense that, because when I watched, um, was it The Unknown Country? Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. Oh, that's great. I love that film. I, I mean, and it, that seems like it was written for you. I mean, was written with me. We were kind of improving it as we were going. Really? So, yeah. Were yeah. a lot of them non-actors? Most of us, yeah. Um, me, Richard Ray Whitman, who plays Grandpa August, and then Raymond Lee, who's like the love interest, for lack of a better term, just um, in Austin. He's oh yeah, yeah. He's the lead of Quantum Leap. Now. Oh really? That's, oh wow. That's what's happened with Ray's career. That worked out for him. Did yeah. yeah. And then his friend Allie. Um, the four of us were SAG actors. Okay. Um, everybody else 
was playing the, themselves. The old lady at the dance hall. Yep, flow. Flow was flow uh, just passed away this last year. Uh, yeah, but danced right up until the very end. Well, I hope that woman who owns the place doesn't get discouraged. I know. I it's, know. That's so, it's so needed. Like those those dance halls definitely are kind of going by the wayside. And a most of, of the stuff. places that we shot at, sadly, have had to close because we shot a lot of that po- or pre-COVID. In but, Dallas? Um, Dallas and South Dakota. Spirit well, yeah, but that, the, the Texas, well, the, the arc of it, and I guess the point um, I was trying to make was the the gravity of a, a somewhat celebration of tradition and and legacy but the counterpoint to it is this like insane eternal grief yeah right yeah so like to play that part in unknown country that that's a grief part mm-hmm. all the way through 100% and, and you don't really realize it but i imagine that the experience of loss in terms of you know the history of of the culture is ever present. Mm-hmm. So that is something that is a a type of foundation that is unique. Fully. Yeah. And I think that made Tana, the character that we created, her life really immense because it ties into her grandma that she just lost. And we don't ever really expose much about her grandma's history. But right. when, you open the, when you open the suitcase at the end... Eagle Eye viewers might notice pictures of Haskell Indian School in there. So Grandma had gone to a boarding school. Um, pictures of her at the end, that guiding photo of her, like, free with her long flowing hair. Yes. Kind of in a way that photo, while it was real in the narrative, also was a transcendence of her spirit, which is, like, kind of carried in at the end. Sure. Because the, the wind. Right. Because the other photo that I pull out of the suitcase where you see her, she's got her short boarding school hair. Okay. So... The story I'd constructed for her grandma was fully formed and one that I decided that the character of Tana wasn't fully aware of. Right. So Tana was kind of adjacent to me in the sense that um, I had I was very close with my own grandma, who was a boarding school survivor, too. Really? Um, I was one of her caretakers until her So last that was days. real? To a degree, yeah. yeah. I had grandma while we were filming that. I only lost her last summer. So we'd already filmed, premiered all of it, um, and then my grandma passed away she shortly saw it? after. Uh, she did, but she didn't remember it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. She's dementia. Hey, yeah, but, um, dealing with that now. Right. I'm trying to put a positive spin on it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> my uh, my grandma was so good natured about it. Like, got the right kind of medication too that her delusions would stay positive instead of like get oh, fearful. Really? It's um that was that was a blessing toward the end of her life. What medication is that? Maybe my dad. I don't can remember. Get on. Oh. I don't. I will. I will text my mom and I'll let you know if if. Because it, it was really kind of changed the game. She would, um, she was just very joyful. Oh, that's know? good. And well, we I could don't... tell her the same jokes over and over again. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so. and they always work. It's a yep, killer. Exactly. It's like you're doing a comics job. <laughs> She's a, you're doing the new audience every time. <laughs> exactly. My dad's favorite joke with her as she was aging was, hey, Ma, you remember uh, that thing I always tell you not to forget? <laughs> and then she'd sit and think for a second, and the answer was always the same. No, <laughs> she would crack up just at the, the irony of that. Well, I don't like. It's nice that the, that that she had that uh, at least that uh, ease to uh, to to be uh, to be happy. Like, unfortunately, my dad has never had that, mm. so there's no going back to it. There's no place that he can return to where the joy would come out. Maybe there's some little early childhood pocket that he can like crack into. Well, the thing I've realized about the dementia is that you can't. You have to let go of who they were at some exactly. point. And deal with what you're dealing with. And then it becomes kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Because, yep. 
Yep. <laughs> because it's, it's always surprising. Yep. And you really don't know what's going to come out of them. Especially when you buy into the delusions like you have to because sure. you can't reason them out of it. Sure. It's like you guide them through it to where they're like feeling okay at least. What were her like, delusions? Uh, they were a lot of them, I think, based on the old Westerns that she used to watch. Really? There were a couple of times where... Um, Sometimes it was like the cowboys outside or the gangsters outside because she also loved old gangster yeah, yeah, movies sure. and um, trying to get into the house. There was one time that really cracked me up, though, because this is this is a Nez Perce woman born in a log cabin in Lapway, Idaho, on the Nez Perce Reservation, went to Chamawa Indian School. You know, this is yeah. a native woman. Yeah. But one of her delusions was like, the Indians are outside trying to get in. <laughs> I'm like, Grandma, I think the Indians are in the house. <laughs> And then that that's what snapped her out of it. She was like, oh, I guess you're right. <laughs> well, that's wild that the, the – because those got to be really old memories. Mm-hmm. So there was – so that was something that was available, you know, in, in the culture that movies would come through? Yeah. Yeah, she, she loved films. Like that was her, her hobby post-retirement. She got a VHS player. She would get – blank VHSs and she subscribed to cable and would just highlight the movies she wanted to record, build her whole whole schedule around recording these movies. Yeah, yeah. So like by the time she was done doing that, she maybe had like 4,000 titles just oh my God. ceiling like to floor, just these just in the house? catalog. Yep. Just, and she watch them over and over? A lot of them she never watched again. Never watched it, just but she had archived them. and collected them and kept them all in a binder with like either perfect typeface, you know, with her typewriter because she always used the same typewriter. Yeah. Um, or, you know, just her impeccable, beautiful, like boarding school, Catholic school handwriting. Right, right. Filling in the middle. Well, so, that, that was something I noticed about The Unknown Country, too, was the focus and, and the sort of like the menace of what I read because it is a, a poetry movie. Mm-hmm. Right. But the menace of the legacy of the, I guess you would call them colonizers or right. the executors of Manifest Destiny. Right. So you, you're dealing with you, you, what are essentially cowboys right. in, in the movie and your character, not just with men, but with a certain like the way she focused on these faces. Right. The only thing you could think like, well, this is the great grandson or this hmm. is the, you, you know, that That's they're interesting. Right. Yeah. 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 Because it wasn't it didn't it, it just felt naturally menacing. And the men mm-hmm. were menacing in the movie. Yeah. And I think um, Marissa, the, our director, her her original inspiration for that was making that road trip because her husband's a paleontologist and works sometimes in South Dakota where these digs happen, Hell Creek, the Hell Creek bed. And then um, also would be stationed in Dallas. So Marissa got very used to this road trip, this exact one that Anna would take. And that's like hard MAGA country is driving through there. There is this sort of, especially like with you know, coastal liberalism that yeah. you're raised with. She's from San Diego. Yeah. There's a very heightened awareness of where you're at, but also when you're meeting people, the the congeniality, the communal feel. Like, I mean, I just, I talk about this all the time, having grown up in Montana, even though my reservation is very liberal. Yeah. Um, like the rest of Montana's not always, you know. I know. It's, I got to go play those places and I'm always right. paranoid. But, um, you know, there's there's a real fear 
that I think a lot of people who don't understand the Midwest have of the people there. You know, just this kind of underlying feel that the Civil War is going to start in the Midwest sort of a thing. Yeah. But then you're actually there and you, you see people really taking care of each other. Um, yeah. It's always the outliers in any given family. You know, the drunk uncles in any given sure. family are the ones who are spouting this off, making the most noise. And that's what you see from the outside. But at the heart of it, it's like you just have small town country folk who just want to take care of each other. Right. And there's, um, there is an element of uh, suspension of judgment as long as you're not getting into politics or religion. Right. It's just, uh, you know, there was, I think, Out Magazine in 2014 named Texas as one of the gayest friendly places to live. Yeah. Because of this, um, this sense of live and let live that's embedded culturally, sure. even though it's like politics are right. very, like, starkly opposed to it. Yeah. But, like... You know, your water pump goes out, you rely on your neighbor, and you don't care who they are. Well, well, that was a time where, you know, what I tend to talk about is the loss of, of necessary tolerance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, once you remove that from the equation where people can be shameless about their intolerance or their, you know, personal morality right. around other people, then it becomes a real problem. Right. And there's no way to bridge it. But I want to believe you. That you go to these towns <laughs> and, you know, like despite, if you don't engage them in a certain way, they're they're going to be decent people. And I, right. I imagine that's true. And I think it's true if you're a pretty young woman, too. Uh, it's really? different. I mean, if you look like a West Coast liberal, then it may not be <laughs> the same welcoming committee. But honestly, a lot of West Coast liberals look like they're uh, farmhands. Well, that's a new thing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. yeah everybody <laughs> it looks like they're in some, uh, you know, old uh, Western picture. Yep. Yeah. But I can count the number of times on one hand that. I've felt like out of place um, or made to feel out of place. But, like but, I don't belong there. But with you, it's like not just a liberal person. It's a native person, right? Yeah. But do and people like, identify that usually? You know, in the Midwest a lot. Oh, yeah. There's like this hyper fixation on like high cheekbones. And it's like you've got that, you know. I remember sitting in that bar in Texas where, you know, she, Tana's just traveling in Texas. Yeah. And there was a local guy who came up and sat next to me. It's the scene where I'm just lighting a cigarette right. and I've gone in to use the bathroom. Yeah. And just like, he's just looking at me, like leaning and looking at me and then like talking about what we're there and then eventually like disclose that I'm native and yeah. he like slaps his hands together. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> it's like he was so proud, like he found one, you know? So yeah, it's interesting when you're in, um, you know, small towns, people want people want to suss out who you are, and, like, ethnicity is a big part of that. But they want to box you in, too, right? Kind of, yeah, yeah. I mean, because then— I mean, it, they want you to affirm their their um, their stereotypes to a degree. Well, I, I think, think that, like, we all kind of do. With, we do it innately. Yeah. You, you know, totally. and, then, and, then, and then you make up your story for that person, and, right. and then you find you're wrong. Yep. I do it here twice a week. <laughs> Eke out a living on that. Yeah, exactly. It's like I have an idea of who this person is. Now they're going to talk me out of it. That's right, it. There you go. That's the, that's the conversation. <laughs> but I, I thought the arc of that movie was interesting because, and I imagine it has some degree of, of truth that whatever was keeping you away from going back to the reservation mm -hmm. for as long as you did, and then reentering that community, and this is also something that happens that I that I found amazing about reservation dogs was there is there a, there is a, a, a groove of interaction yeah. that, that, that is slower, more human, mm -hmm. uh, more to the point. Yep. And, and that, you know, whatever the aversion of, of the character was, and I don't know if you feel this now or how often you return back 
Have you explored that for yourself? Do you feel comfortable when you go back? Oh, absolutely. Um, that was where Tana was very adjacent to me because I the switch up that I'd made in her life um, was if my non-native parent wasn't supportive of my native identity. Oh, okay. So yeah. I had made Tana's mother a non-native woman who kind of got swept up in this romance with this native man and wanted him to be all these things that he wasn't. Yeah. So then living with her during formative years and hearing all of this racist shit about my my dad and my family from my mom, from right. you know, Tana. Yeah. Tana hearing all of this. Um, the name Tana came from a Lakota word, Tanakila, which means hummingbird. That's, uh-huh. that's my dad. That's Lily's dad's um, Blackfeet name. So that was kind of... Your your dad. Your, my dad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that was kind of a nod to my dad, um, who's where my native side comes from. Yeah. And, my, you know, my mom, she moved to the res. She met my dad on the res because she'd moved there to work in Head Start. And, like... She was very aware of where she was coming in as an outsider. She built curriculum around what Blackfeet people had to say about how they wanted their kids to be taught. What was that like? um, I mean, my mom's just kind of a do-gooder. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Um, She's very cool. But what what was the dialogue in terms of curriculum? What were they concerned about? Well, one thing that she did when I was in elementary school was um, she worked to figure out a way to get Blackfeet language into our school. So we were the first class, um, and this was a little bit before language immersion programs started popping up nationwide. Um, We have a beautiful language immersion school, and it's in our public schools on the reservation too now, kind of based on the King Kamehameha model in Hawaii for revitalization. Yeah. But this was before that. Um, That came to my res when I was going in, when we were about ready to leave. The late 90s is about the time that we moved off res. Did you speak? A bit. Yeah. Like, I can, you know, count to 10, know a few colors, know animals, know know some bad words, like a lot of us do. Um, (laughs) I can introduce myself. That's like what we're all taught. And, you know, it's just a process of relearning. So, yeah, with Tana, I had decided, okay, so if, you know, Lily, if me, if I had a mom that was somehow disappointed by what this life was with my dad or somehow, like, felt like, oh, you know, because my mom could take teasing, like... She could take it, yeah. you know, and she would... Um, from it, from natives. Yeah. yeah. And she would take it graciously. You know, yeah. it's like that's part of how you know you're loved is if you're teased, you know. Yeah, yeah. But that's foreign to a lot of people who are coming in. And, you know, there are a lot of people that, like, end up with native people that come in with a certain, like, amount of a savior complex. Sure. You just see it all. Yeah. Um, but, like, my mom was very get in and help and stay out of the way. Yeah. Um, so I'd imagine that Tana's mom was somebody who was very intolerant and raised her like away from her native family. Right. Like she grew up with certain embedded um, prejudices against what it is to be on a reservation. Right. I do see that in some of my extended family. Um, that they're the desire to pass in yeah, a way. Yeah. Or like with my mom's family, just some of the, um, the stereotypes that her, her dad, um, your grandfather. Would, yeah. Even though he like, grew up in the south yeah. you know and it's like he worked on the navajo reservation for a long time in new mexico arizona in new mexico yeah yeah installing um power lines uh, he worked for motorola to um put the communication system okay. in so he had this at one on one side like this fondness yeah and on this other side like no absolutely my daughter's not moving to a reservation huh. um so there was like yeah it was this imagination that if my life were more centered in that 
which it wasn't. You know, I was pretty estranged from my grandparents. Didn't really know a lot of that on your, side. On of your anything. dad's side? On my mom's side. On your mom's side, yeah. It was very, very much, um, you know, we became an intergenerational house when I was 11 with my dad's mom and, like, grew wow. up on my dad's dad's reservation. And it's like, that's that's who my family is. Yeah. A lot of times I have to catch myself when I talk about on both sides. I'm talking about both sides of my dad's family. It's like... My mom is so important to me. Yeah. Um, and I do have cousins that I talk to and, you know, I talk to my aunties, but like it's kind of, uh, you know, a foreign world to me. Really? Yeah. So the character that you were playing in in Unknown Country, you had, you had to make a shift in that you were brought up to be detached. Yeah. From your, your yep. native and roots. I decided that later in her life, when she could kind of differentiate and break away from her mom a bit, she did go back to Minneapolis, um, did like reconnect with her grandma. Yes. It was like I made part of her life always. Yes. And um, then took up the mantle of taking care of her grandma. So, but I guess like in the, in these, in, in First Cow and in, you know, the big movie, the Oscar nominated <laughs> movie. Killers of the Flower Moon. It's interesting because I, I don't know if you came up against, you know, typecasting it, when you were younger and acting. Did you, because I know that is an issue with people of a mm-hmm. certain ethnicity or race. Right. And especially with Native people and African-American people. Mm-hmm. Did you deal with that? You know, to a degree, but I think I was warned about being like that I would have to deal with that more than I actually dealt with it. Right. Um, like and maybe one, things were turning a little bit? I think so. Yeah. You know, and it's like, I'm mixed, so I can play right. multiple ways. I do feel like in some circumstances, it maybe kept me from getting roles. Because I went to, when I was an undergrad, I didn't get cast in a whole lot. Were you studying acting? I was. In, yeah. At University of Montana? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And my classwork was great. Yeah. Like I got consistently great feedback. I right. felt good about my scene work. Um, but I didn't get cast that much. And I never really got affirmation as to why that was. I did raise hell with the department uh, my freshman year about them doing Peter Pan, which may have kind of, I don't want to say blacklisted me, but made maybe some people a little more averse. You were to fighting to work for the role as, uh, as Peter? No. <laughs> <laughs> why can't I? What kind of place is this? Why do you assume that yeah. me, a native actress named Lily, would want to audition for Tiger Lily? Yeah, yeah. I want to be on the wire. I want to fly. <laughs> no, I just, um, I, I took issue with them doing that play at all because the largest population of non-white students at the university are natives, and it's like that's a obscenely racist play. Oh, wow. I don't even know it then. Oh, man. Uh, Peter Pan, like it's literally the lines in there. And of course, they cut out all of the parts um, that were very blatantly racist and then ultimately treated it as like they're the natives to Never Never Land. They're not the Indians. But like oh, in okay. yeah, Jim yeah, yeah. Barry's whole cowboy Indian right, thing. Right, right, like, right. Like the lines were ug ug wah. Oh, okay. For yeah. all the native characters. So what, they switched that to actual uh, native language? <laughs> <laughs> nope. They just made it kind of a, a light sort of reminiscent wash of Polynesian culture, which was also like, ugh, okay, whatever. Yeah. Whatever. But well, anyways, like raising Cain enough instead of, and maybe that had something oh, to do yeah, with yeah, it. Yeah. But I think a lot of it also had to do with, I didn't, I don't know. There were a lot of family dramas, but I would get some... Um, 
I, while it, where I wasn't getting cast in theater main stage shows, I was getting cast in student films with the New Media Arts program there. Yeah. So that was really nice because that was students recognizing that the one show that I did get cast in or the first show I got cast in was a multimedia piece and people could see immediately that I worked well on camera. Right. So then I started getting requests from media arts to do their films. And it was great because by the time I graduated, I had a whole reel. Like oh, actors yeah. moved to L.A. and worked for years to get a reel assembled. Just and you got here it. with a reel? I didn't ever come here, but I did leave. <laughs> I did leave school with a reel that we could submit. Well, I think the interesting thing, too, in, in, in what I was going to get at in approaching um, Molly Kyle or, or even in The First Cow and you played, what, uh, did you play a, a princess of some kind? <laughs> um, that Royalty-ish? Kind of. That character, I kind of based on a woman in my family history mm. that I learned more about again later with uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. But um, her name was Natawista, Medicine Snake Woman. Yeah. And she was the wife of a frontiersman diplomat named Alexander Culbertson and had a lot of money yeah. around this period of time. Okay, Turns out um, Janae Collins, who plays my sister in Killers of the Flower Moon, Rita, the one yeah. who dies with the house explosion. Yeah. Um, Janae is uh, Natawista's great-great-great-great-granddaughter. Wow. I'm Natawista's great-great-great-grandniece. You are in... Real life. Yeah. So Janae and I are related in real life. <laughs> That's wild. It's Yeah, it's fantastic. And, you know, that, that side of our family, like, is a very clean, cleanly kept line. Like, and it goes back. You can track it, track, track it back. That Yep, that branch of the family for quite a ways. But through tribal genealogy? Yeah, just through family, like family oral tradition. Oh, really? Knowing who we come from. Like, and you do, you have some. But also, you know, you put it on government papers because we're, we're, we're kept. We have pedigrees the way that a lot of animals do. <laughs> Is that true? In the oh, yeah, blood quantum, like keeping track of like family lineage. Like you have to you have to have a certain blood quantum to be considered indige- an indigenous person. So our records of our blood quantum is very, very um, intact. Huh. And you go and you have, uh, I, I know I did a little bit of research. You have kind of uh, tribal leaders yeah, yeah, Natawista's nephew was Mike Stu Red Crow. He yeah. was the one who signed Treaty 7 for Kainai Nation in Canada. So he was, yeah, he was chief during that time. Um, and what about on your uh, on your mom's side? Big old question mark. You don't I, know? I really don't know much about my mom's side at all. Because they don't keep the genealogy. <laughs> Not really. I mean, one of my aunties did a genetics test, and I yeah. know there's like so there's some semblance of maybe a longer story. I yeah, know that there was a Dutch ancestor. My mom's uh, grandpa was um, had come over from the Netherlands. Okay, but he got to the Netherlands through France, and yeah. then they got to France from like yeah. Iran. Oh wow! Yeah, it's it's a it's a strain like. But I don't know. There's no oral tradition as far as that goes on my mom's side. But I guess the the question. That's interesting is that there, there's a difference between playing a, a person who is native and playing a native person. Right. Yep. Right? Yep. And, and at some point, you know, you've been fortunate in, in that you get the, you've gotten roles like that. You got roles like that before killers. Yeah. You know, certainly um, certain women. But, but are, you must be aware of that when you have to approach a significantly native character. Right. To to make sure the humanity is correct. Yeah, when it's a 
essential to the story that that character is native because it's getting out of history. Then, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was a little resistant early on when I was told that I'd be pigeonholed and typecast because I was like, well, native people are everywhere. Right. There's a lot of people that you watch on follow and probably have on your playlists that sure. you have no idea are native, but yeah. they're there. I mean, I met a Blackfeet guy in Austria named Klaus Bukowski. We're everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, and when I was playing, like for a role like Molly, yeah. even though there's nobody alive who remembers her specifically, there's absolutely a legacy and there are descendants and there's people who are her living flesh and blood today. And, you know, the whole Reign of Terror is still an open wound for the community. Yeah. So there's a lot of ways that you need to approach it. And I hate the word... I both hate and respect the word authenticity because authenticity at a surface level feels like you're appraising a rug, you know? Yeah, I, I, I was thinking about that too because the, the idea of authenticity, I think what I said was that like if I was my authentic self, I would do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I am with you on that. <laughs> Long, for, far enough into this campaign, I just want to be a slug for a minute. <laughs> right, but you do like there, there, there are components of, of – of charm and vulnerability that I think has been kind of put under this umbrella of authenticity. Mm -hmm. That if you are candid enough and you are empathetic and exude a certain amount of vulnerability, I think it's just culturally surprising. So people are like, oh, that's a real person right there. Right. It's their authentic self. Right. Right. And that element, I think, is something that is easy for people to access with my performances on screen. Yeah. Which maybe why you pick up on this um, people projecting whatever they want. Yeah, sure. Which is... Um, That's good. Yeah. It's especially if you want um, audiences to have empathy for your character and what they're going through, which was essential for this story. Because for so long, the focus was only on the FBI element. Oh, you formation. mean building the movie? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then um, in building Molly... There's, there were a lot of responsibilities to hold. Responsibility, first and foremost, to her grandchildren, mm -hmm. like her family. Did you meet them? I did. I met Margie and I met Billy. Margie, her granddaughter, I can see, likely was one of the biggest ways Gran was able to draw Molly as, mm -hmm. a, as a character in his book. was Because um, when you're with Margie, it's, a lot of that is there. And a lot of Margie went into Molly. You okay. know, we only had one... You know, a good significant long amount of time together. We had a meeting. What did Leo she do? was there too. You know, we were just kind of talking about how how this love story would maybe be possible. And though Margie was the one who told who told Marty at a meeting, um, Greyhorse had held with you know all the filmmakers. She got up and said, "You have to remember these two loved each other." Um, in my meeting with Leo, she was also at the same time very skeptical about how that could have been possible and how we would possibly be able to play it. Yeah, I, it's one of the, the things that sticks in my mind mm -hmm. about the movie, more, more, almost more than anything else, was that, you know, how does Leo or how does that character or, or that person necessarily, and who I'm sure is not, you know, as compelling as Leo in real life. <laughs> But how do you how do you hold both of those worlds in place and still honor the love? How do you know right. that what you're expected to do is kill your wife, right? And 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 then have this compartmentalized mm -hmm. love for them. I I thought it was it was very tricky. Yeah, and I think he did an incredible job with an almost impossible character to play. 
Yeah, and um, it's a it's a real Scorsese character. Yeah, and I needed his performance to give mine any dignity. That yes. it wasn't just about this like handsome blue eyed devil, you know. It was right. It was. Um, I mean, on one hand, like maybe rewatches the film and people commit to like the little nuances in it, um, which kind of bowl over you the first watch, um, which honestly is kind of what most people give any film is one watch. But there was this whole guardianship program set up. Osages being deemed incompetent of handling their own money. Right. Literally incompetent Osage is the title that was on your paperwork. You had to have a white person appointed to be your guardian of your money. Yeah. And it was of benefit to a lot of people to be married to their guardian. Because then right. you'd like just say, hey, honey, write a check for me to do this. Right. You know? And Osage women, are, they own everything, you know, culturally. Oh, that's so funny. It's sort of like uh, musicians today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What do you call a musician without a girlfriend? Broke. Homeless. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. But was... your character, you know, as, as it evolves in the movie, are, are acutely aware of this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Acutely aware of some elements of it. The thing that was a big, like, clue, and that came from, um, I was so grateful in my language lessons to be given this story by Christopher Cote. It's a a trickster story. Um, Shomikasi Coyote is one of their trickster figures. And Coyote is the, like, hedonistic, self-serving, like, fop. Yeah. And immediately, you know asked around the community and got permission to use that analogy. Um, and everybody was like, oh, yeah, absolutely. That makes For sense. For who? For Leo? For Leo. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was like, okay, Molly sees him as this coyote. She sees him as this trickster. So that first scene, calling him out for that, that was something that was added in later. But it's kind of like, all right, I got your number. I know how this story ends. Right. Like So Molly... You know, finding this man who self, you know, he admits it. You know, I like to make a party at night and sleep all day. I sure do love money. Sure do love whiskey. She's yeah. like, all right, good. <laughs> You're yeah. easy. You yeah, know? I get you. You'll, yep, I get you. I've got, a, I got your number. I can handle you, and um, you'll enjoy money, but you'll also write my checks for me. And right. you know, you look good. So this is this works for me. Right. Um. So on both elements, there was like definitely a chemistry and a playfulness. Um. But there was definitely a mutual benefit. And then eventually there became real love there. And, you know, the, the elements. Kids. Yeah, that's a huge part of it is you see a man that is so committed and so much loves his kids. There's no way you're going to suspect that he would do anything to hurt them or right. you. Even if you do suspect it, you know how easy it is. And I think a lot of people who are in relationships that are maybe not this abusive to the point of being poisoned to death. But, you know, these dynamics. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a very specific. That That's a... Uh, uh, systemic gaslighting. Yeah, absolutely. But that, as a metaphor, is what it is. Yep, absolutely. And in a, as a larger metaphor, committing to this love story was a way of looking at it as an analogy for the broken trust that colonization, the United States government, has had with indigenous peoples. It's been nothing but entering into trust relationships that are supposed to be mutually beneficial and then just the continual erosion of our sovereignty, right. which is what you're seeing happen in Mali. And, you know, we work within the systems that we can. We maintain, like, our own communities as much as we can. When you're crippled by these situations of, you know, guardianship or being wards of the U.S. government, of not having true sovereignty, then there's 
not a lot of option. There's not a lot of other way out. You have to be very creative. You have to be very subversive. You have to be very together. And, and ultimately, you know, where we're at now, though, I, I think contextualized differently, is, is still directly related to that. Yeah. And we're still continually entering into trust relationships in good faith. Yeah. You know, it's like, so this, um, yeah, the, on a microcosm, this relationship felt like a good way to have this conversation for mm. what the film's really about. And, and what do you, and, and with, um, with Marty, Marty had seen uh, certain women. Is that what you? Apparently, yeah. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? I'm not sure at what point in the process he saw it, but I know that when he did, he saw what he needed for Molly. Because somebody like Kelly yeah. made a film the way she makes films. Right. You know, I remember um, one of the films that I studied and loved, still one of my favorite movies to this day, The Adaptation. Oh, yeah. Charlie great. Kaufman's That's script. That's great. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> so good. I, just, um, I watched that recently, yeah. It's so, and it still holds up. Sure. Every performance, every character, the writing, like the meta qualities in the writing yeah. that are so funny. Yeah. Um, like, I just... I studied, I've seen that film so many times and I would just study, study, study it. Yeah. And I remember Nicolas Cage as, you know, Charlie. Yeah. Talking about, you know, why can't a story just be about flowers? Yeah. And I remember thinking that when I was watching, it's like, yeah, I'd watch that movie. Yeah. Then years later, here's Kelly Reichert. It's like, oh, this movie, it's kind of just really about horses, kind of really just about ranching. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's saying everything. Right. And I think like... Maybe the neuroses that uh, that of a writer that Kaufman was kind of um, tongue in cheek yeah. handling in yeah. that film is what gets in the way of just the observational quality a lens has and just the trust that your audience, if they've sought out this kind of film, they're going to make those connections themselves. Oh yeah, and and Nicholas Cage's relationship with that tape recorder. Okay, <laughs> so good. <laughs> Hunched over. Dawn of time. We're starting yeah. here. <laughs> <laughs> the sweat. God, the way that he was able to sustain this comedic timing with himself. Yeah. That's just like, that's every actor's dream is to play their own twin, I think. <laughs> yeah. He's kind of a, a an awesome character mm -hmm. in real life, I imagine, as well. Have I, you ever I, met him? I have not, but I love watching his interviews. Like when um, Unbearable Weight of uh, Massive Talent yeah. came out at South By, yeah. I remember he was just went on and on in one of his uh, his interviews about, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm wearing this because I wanted to look like shortbread, because now I just really want to eat shortbread. <laughs> <laughs> he's a, he's a, a, like, a, Sir, you're a work of art. Yeah, an authentic weirdo. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And now... How do you weigh in on people's reaction to the movie? You know, in terms of, uh, you know, whether it was correct. You know, the thing is, there's not, we were hoping that there wouldn't be a correct takeaway. Yeah. I think. Um, How is that not going to happen? I mean, one thing I just hope is that the human element of it that we you know, Marty fought hard for that, like, you know, initially was turned away when the script was rechained or was, um, was revamped to yeah. center Ernest and Molly instead of the FBI. Yeah. The, um, the morning that you go through watching it because you do, it's like you're invited into this relationship. And it was one of the first times in my career in any work that I've done on film, I've watched a, I've watched a character I've played, I think, the same way the audience is watching her instead of analyzing maybe what I would have done different in this right. take or whatever. And I was just feeling, I was leaning in and feeling 
so much love for her and so much like I missed her when she wasn't on screen. I was mm. wondering where she was. Um, and not even in a way where it's like, where's my coverage? Where's my coverage? Right. It's just like Patty Smith said it beautifully when she when she introduced um, me at the National Board of Review. She said it's like the new moon. It's um, when it's not seen, it's still felt. Mm-hmm. And um, She's amazing. She's, oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. Like, so a, amazing. That's authentic. Yes. Patty just lives in it. Yeah. She's so easy to be around. I just love her. Yeah, sweet. Um, but yeah, when I was watching Killers of the Flower Moon and feeling all of these things for Molly in a yeah. way I didn't even necessarily access when we were making it. Right. I also saw the audience doing the same thing. And like that connection is what matters to me most is the, the love that you have for her. for Because then you feel her loss. It's like you, you meet briefly her sisters and all of those actresses did such a tremendous job drawing yes. these, these in a short scene. You get a sense of who these women are. And then you miss them when they're gone. Totally. Um, and that balance of contempt for Leonardo's character. Yeah. And and the struggle for empathy. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like you have when you're hearing a good trickster story. It's like you're following the trickster narrative. They're essentially the anti-hero or the complicated sure. hero of the sure. story. They never really win in the end, but you learn a lot of lessons from what they do, how not to behave. That's right. And they kind of slink off. Yep. There's not a confident exit. Right. Yeah. They just kind of like flit away. Exactly. So like when I got this trickster story in my language lesson, suddenly Ernest made sense to me as Lily. The whole film made sense to me in a new way as a trickster story. Well, that's amazing because that moment where, you know, if that was in place— you know, in 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 the character, that that moment where the trickster, you know, not unlike a narcissist, exactly, is revealed in that scene where you meet out on that dirt road mm-hmm. when you know everything is up, and you might have known it before, but you were like, "This is the end of the trickster story." Yeah. So go move on and destroy something else, you charming fuck. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You sound like you grew up with these stories, Mark. <laughs> I was obsessed with the idea of the trickster for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I'm, so, yeah, you see it. Like, yeah. Suddenly, when when you have that that framework to apply to this story, it makes sense in a whole new way. It does. I mean, it's it's kind of amazing. Yeah, I I I've gone through very uh, sort of uh, untethered mystical periods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely Good. been times in my life where I've been driving the Schopenhauer mystic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where I've been driving and a coyote will stop in the road. I'm like, I get it. <laughs> all right. I, all right. All right. I, I, I get that I'm, I'm being guided somehow and I have to interpret this. It's the worst. You got to uh, reel your brain in sometimes. Like the hummingbirds from your special. Exactly. Yeah. The hummingbirds. Yeah. I'm very, uh, I have, I feed them all the time. Yep. And I, I get, like, it's ridiculous. When I see the feeders empty, I'm like, oh, are they okay? Yep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Me came in the form of a bee once. Yeah, yeah. Still don't know what it was telling me, but I had a pet bee for a while. But that's a, but that's an amazing thing about you know this the about native spirituality in general is that it, you make room for this stuff, and it's not that it's necessarily real, but it's a guide. Yeah, and I think maintaining that light-handed humor with it, yeah. that acknowledgement, you know, sure. It's, um, I think it's really 
tempting for a lot of new age philosophy to grab our ways because we think they understand Always. it. Any Always. Mis- yeah. But like having that humorous approach, it's like, all right, there's there's patterns here that I'm noticing. Um and within that there's a lot of humor. Yeah. You know? It's like one of my one of my like spiritual family back home, one of my ceremonial family yeah. was joking about that with somebody who came in, rolled in, you know, an outsider who was invited and rolled in to yeah. To one of these one of these doings, like this eagle flew by and then landed and then asked, "Oh, Clay- Clayton, what does that mean?" I think it means that eagle's tired. <laughs> wants to take a rest. <laughs> I'm not playing this game with you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And that's a lot of it. You know. What's a ceremonial family as opposed to a? Um, I mean, when you go through ceremony, um, you're. You're in it with people that you have to have a lot of trust with, that you mm. come back around and do it with again and again. What type of ceremony? Oh, all kinds. Like this one, you know, we'll just say, we'll just call it a sweat for now. Oh, yeah. So that's, that's, that's part of it. But there's a there's a larger thing that I'm a little hesitant to put on radio talking about. But okay. It's like our family that kind of not related or if we are related, it's, uh, you know. It's like the trust of, uh, like it's like, you know, when you... Do hallucinogens? You need a guide. Yeah, that's not part of our way, but <laughs> no. Yeah, but I mean, the, the sure. same like, idea that mm-hmm. you're going to be vulnerable in a way that you're not going to have control over. Exactly, because you, you go into ceremony to bring balance to things. Ultimately, okay. you know, yeah. to yourself, to the world around you, to cleanse like out stuff, to like kind of clear the cash from the previous year. All, there's, I mean, there's a lot yeah. of reasons that you. How have often it. do you do it? Oh, not as much these days, but um, you need to after this press tour. Oh, for sure. <laughs> No, the way that I've always kind of looked at all of this is when I can't be there, then it'll still find me. Like, I mean, fasting is a big, like, uh, part of a lot of, yeah, yeah. you know, our ways. Sure. And, like, there was a period of time making this movie. We were doing it in the dead of summer. And I couldn't go home to do, um, to to participate yeah. in that part of the year where fasts happen. But I found that I was fasting anyway. And I felt like because it was for this wasting illness portion of the film oh, where really? Molly was like dwindling away yeah, and yeah. getting smaller and smaller there was a I mean doesn't remarkably read but there was about a 30 pound weight loss during the process of making the movie uh-huh. um, to kind of particularly accommodate that period of time of wasting away Yeah, but um, the last most intense periods of it just happened to hit at that point where you fast so I was like okay I'm fasting for Molly then like that's yeah. what this is, because when you're doing a character like that and you're handling a history like that, it's kind of accomplishing the same thing that brings people together to do ceremony. Mm. You know, it's um, bringing balance to things. It's right. exercising uh, trauma. It's yes. um, in a way that's safe in community. Yeah, that's shared. Yeah, um, that you can be held. You know, so that's kind of. That's kind of how I looked at that whole period. Cause worked out. Of, yeah, it worked out. And there were a lot of people in Osage country who would, you know, people I'd go sweat with that would invite me. Right. And um, just knew that I needed taken care of for this role and felt familiar somewhere back Oh, home. wow. Really? On set? Yeah, not or on around. set. Yeah, periphery. Like get invited and then go on the weekend sort of a thing. And you spend time with them? Yeah. Oh, that, that must have been totally connective. Yeah, and I think playing a character like this, especially when, you know, I was talking a little bit earlier about my hesitance to jump into the unknown country because of just this history of the docudrama on right. reservation yep. can be just a poverty porn display sure. and be really exploitive. 
Um, and that's absolutely not who Marissa is and not what the film, that film was. Yeah, I didn't get but, that sense at all. There right. was, like there was still that, that pride. I mean, the one scene mm-hmm. with your grandfather, right. there were some amazing moments there. And Richard is in Res Dogs too. That was all improv. Like, it was great. Yeah, that's Richard. We called him the day before and asked because we were like, we need a character like that. So uh-huh. that, and I was like, that's Richard Ray Whitman. And then called him that day and he got on a plane that night and shot with us the day after that. Wild. That was how we ran and get, well, it was a running gun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were running sure. and ganning. Ganning, running and ganning. <laughs> so what, um, what's going on now? I mean, how are you going to choose, like, what do you, you know, the, here's the odd thing. Like when, when I talked to Sterling, He's a sweet guy. Yeah, he is. He came to my birthday party. He flew out, came to my birthday Aww. party. It was, it was a small party, and I was just sort of <laughs> I want because I like that guy. Yeah, that and, Tulsa, uh, the Tulsa LAX direct is the is the Harjo. Yeah, <laughs> the, 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 yeah. the Harjo direct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was so nice. But like, there, like having seen all his movies, mm-hmm. you know, leading up to the series, which which was I think the the best TV show in the last you know twenty thirty years for a lot of different reasons. But he was here, and, he, and I'm like, what do you work on? He's like, I'm doing And I'm thinking, like, but you got to keep doing the, the Native stuff. I mean, what, you're not going to do a superhero movie, are you? you can't. <laughs> People need, oh, need no. to know, you know. Right. How do you, how do you move forward thinking about roles? I mean, kind of the way that I moved forward from undergrad, any role that I play is going yeah. to become in some way an indigenous role, regardless yeah. if it's explicitly so, which does a lot of restoration of like breaking down stereotypes of who we are and where we belong. Right. Um, I definitely still feel, and it's a lot of it's the projects you attract. Yeah. You know, I, um, there have been several times in my career, and I think a lot of actors can relate to this, where you have to audition for something because it's too good of a connection, mm-hmm. or you're auditioning for the casting director more than you are right, for the right. role, whatever yeah. it is. I, a lot of times, really phone it in if I don't want it. <laughs> oh, good. Intentional <laughs> um, failure. I'm all for it. A bit, yeah. yeah polite like, failure. I'm going to polish this so that I'll... They'll think of me for other stuff. Oh, but, good. You know, it's like yeah. just drop a stitch somewhere sure. so it's not too. Well, that's a that's some controlled craft there. I mean, sometimes it just happens that yeah. way. Um, but I do find that the roles that find me are ones that I'm really, really excited about. And it's, um, you know, there have been a lot of offers and things that have been wonderful, but haven't really felt like quite right for the next move. Yeah. But this next one I'm doing, I'm so excited about because it continues. It it's feels so full circle in a lot of ways, you know, going back to adaptation being like my um my little mm-hmm. like master class study yeah. of acting and everything. My next film is a Charlie Kaufman script. Wow. It's an adaptation of a beautiful novel by Yoko Ogawa called The Memory Police. Huh. And it's a nondescript island in a nondescript time. So it's like nowhere, therefore everywhere. Right. Um, and it's, you know, a sci-fi in the way like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is a sci-fi right. dealing with um, the subconscious, dealing with memory. Uh-huh. Um, so it's... Is he directing? No, no. The director's Reed Morano, who started out as a DP. Oh, good. And still is, you know, a very, yeah. very gifted cinematographer who worked with... She shot vinyl for Marty. Oh, okay, okay. Um, she and Rodrigo are very close. He was like kind of a mentor for okay. her. Okay. And she's, um, yeah, she's started into her directing journey and has done a few features Well, that's now. good. That's good because like if Charlie directs it, you'll get to a point in the movie where you'll be like, wait, what, what's what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> Rewind it. I got to go back. Go back. 
Uh, yes, you watched I'm Thinking of Ending Things, too. Yeah, I did. And also the other one, the uh, Synecdoche. Oh, yeah, Synecdoche. Synecdoche. That's, oh, my God. I love Philip Seymour Hoffman. He's oh, I love him, like, too. But that God. movie, at some point, I'm like, I, I think I'm. there's a lot here, and I'm only getting a very little of it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, yep. I, you know, it's one of those ones you got to go back to. I kind of tried to watch that movie the same way I watch a Beckett play. It's yeah. like, oh, just, yeah, that's it's like, right. You just got to let it happen to you. Did you watch that animated thing, Anomalisa? Yes. Oh my God! It's incredible. That's the best thing ever. Yep. yep. So in it's so intuitive mm-hmm. about humanness. Yep. It was and it's puppets. I know. It was mind blowing to me. The guy on the road. Yep. Very existential. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was uh, great talking to you. You too. You feel Thank good. You. I feel good. <laughs> me too. Where are you going now? Ah, uh, where am I going now? You got TV thing. Or I got. You... Yeah, I got a. I got a. I know I've got to get glam touched up. <laughs> oh, I mean, there's probably so, a panicking manager out there. I know, there's, I know there. there's cameras. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, uh, good luck. I hope you win. Thank you. It would be nice to win. It would be nice, but it's also would be nice not to, you know? <laughs> okay. You tell yourself what you have to. <laughs> Keep your expectations low, and then you're always yeah, surprised. You're preaching you're always to the choir. Surprised. <laughs> I, I, low to negative is what... <laughs> Is where I go. You're the most jovial misanthrope I've ever met. <laughs> it's it's all about self hatred. It's not. I just project it, but it's easy to reel it in. <laughs> all right, take care. Thank you, Mark. What a joy, people! And I I don't throw that word around. What a joy it was to talk to a. Uh, Lily Gladstone, Killers of the Flower Moon is now available to buy or rent on digital platforms and is streaming on Apple TV+. Okay, friends, hang out a second. Hey, uh, to get to know some of the people Lily and I were talking about, go check out episode 1424 with Kelly Reichart and episode 1252 with Sterling Harjo. That episode was the first time I met Sterling uh, before I did a guest role on Reservation Dogs. You're having a hard time figuring out where to premiere this, and they were going to do it at, at Hollywood <laughs> oh, Forever? Oh, yeah, yeah. The, at the cemetery. Like, if people don't know, Hollywood Forever is this, is this event. It's a cemetery with a lot of famous actors. It's a famous cemetery, but they do they do movies there. Yeah. Right? So so because we can't do it inside, is that the thing? They, they wanted to find a place to screen exactly. the premiere of, of Reservation Dogs, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and you just... I have a meeting, so I have a meeting. And, you know, Reser- and, uh, FX is amazing. They've been yeah, so yeah. good to work with. Yeah. And f- uh, creatively like free you yeah know, like let's do everything but we have a meeting and um with marketing they're like yeah we're gonna thinking about doing the uh premiere here at this uh it's a really great video it's a cemetery and yeah. i was like oh shit i was like look man <laughs> none of the indians are gonna show up <laughs> ain't nobody showing up including myself to the cemetery to have and he's and like i was like we're gonna have to find some place i was like yeah i'm we're glad we asked you <laughs> Like man, they got Navajo filmmakers on this thing. They're not going to show up, man. They they won't even stand across the street from this place, you know. Uh, oh, too man. much. Man. Yeah. That episode twelve fifty two and Kelly Reichart is episode fourteen twenty four. They're available for free in whatever podcast app you're using right now. To get every episode of WTF ad free, sign up for WTF Plus by going to the link in the episode description, or go to wtfpod.com and click on WTF Plus. And a reminder before we go, this podcast is hosted by ACAST. Here's some archived guitar. God knows there's enough of it.
Boomer lives. Monkey in La Fonda. Cat angels everywhere. Thank you.